premium pay for service, boutique medicine, freestanding emergency rooms. Can these concepts deliver? You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jack Fernoshek, Medical Director of the Emergency Department at Lake Forest Hospital in Illinois and Clinical Associate Professor at the University of Chicago. In addition, Dr. Fernoshek is a past president of ASAP, the American College of Emergency Physicians. Today we're discussing ED alternatives, boutique medicine, urgent care centers, freestanding emergency rooms, and the financial impact of all of these. Welcome, Dr. Fernoshek. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background in emergency medicine so that they can appreciate your perspective? Well, I'm originally from Canada, and I think as we talk, you'll see that they may color my thinking a little bit about the shape of healthcare in the United States. I came to Chicago in 1975 to do a residency in emergency medicine at the University of Chicago, and I spent five years there as a faculty member, and then another five years at Brown University, also in academic life and emergency medicine. But sometime after that, I returned to this area to practice in a community hospital in Hinsdale and also another community hospital in LaGrange and Bolingbrook. I spent about 20 years in the emergency room in both of those facilities before coming to Lake Forest. I am the medical director of the ER at Lake Forest, the acute care center at Grays Lake, and I still attend on a part-time basis at the University of Chicago in their ER. So that's quite a background. There's been a lot of talk, of course, with the new administration about health care reform. One approach that some areas have tried is with boutique medicine, which basically gives premium service to those who can afford it. But how does that concept affect emergency departments? Well, the volume of patients coming to emergency departments has continued to increase over the years. Data from last year indicates that there were about 120 million visits to emergency rooms. When I first started back in the 70s, it was about 50 million visits. So the growth has been stratospheric, literally. Now, only a small proportion of healthcare expenditures and healthcare dollars are spent in the emergency department despite the large number of patients that present themselves for care there. Most recently, the concept of boutique medicine, I think, has emerged. It's, it's interesting. I know in a variety of venues, you can subscribe to the services of a family physician for about $2,000 a year. The family physician promises to limit his or her practice to a certain number of patients, usually about 1,000 patients or so, and also promises to give you unlimited access to themselves, including in the hospital. From the perspective of the emergency department, I think this means fewer patients. Since one of the reasons people come to the emergency room is the inability to see their own private physician or family physician, I think that concept has some merit from the perspective of limiting emergency department use. There is also another program that I've seen emerging, and that's the so-called VIP program, where certain members of the community, particularly those that donate to healthcare or hospitals, are identified for somewhat special treatment, not only in the emergency setting, but by their practitioners. And in both instances, I think the idea is that visits to the emergency room are somewhat curtailed by this development. Everyone's had patients that received VIP treatment, usually by a phone call, but is this actually an organized concept where certain people are identified as being special? 
It is in some places. I think the idea is to identify folks that have a special relationship to a hospital or an organization and then make it a little bit easier for them to get through the system. The simplest way would be for them to have a card in which all of their data is embedded, allowing them to bypass lengthy registration procedures and the like and be able to get their services a little bit more quickly. So I'm imagining that these numbers are probably pretty small. So for the average practitioner in an emergency department, it's not going to offset your volume too much, but it will make a certain set of patients very happy. Is that correct? I think it's a question of kind of getting around the difficulties of wending your way through the registration process and the process in general. Is there a concept beyond this of boutique emergency medicine, or is this as close as you get to it? Well, the concept I refer to is sort of the boutique family practice, but in emergency medicine, I think there are a number of innovations that are taking place. And I think, for the most part, these are being driven by the difficulties of accessing the healthcare system the way it exists now. It's somewhat inconvenient. It's not necessarily in your neighborhood. And so you might have to go a ways or wait a bit in order to access the healthcare system. It's comparable to the development of outpatient surgical centers, which bypass going to a hospital in the first place and allow healthcare to be delivered elsewhere. In the case of emergency medicine, the concepts are to provide a service in a different place or a somewhat different venue and segment the patient population into different services. Some examples of this might be urgent care, the so-called retail-based clinic, after-hours pediatric care, the freestanding emergency center, and even in the latter-day emergency department, the so-called fast track, where patients with lesser acuity illnesses are processed through the system a little bit more quickly. Other aspects of this are occupational medicine, wellness medicine, and sports medicine, but all of these attempt to segment the patient population into areas where different services can be provided more expediently. So let me ask you one more question about this. As I understand it with boutique medicine, if you're in one of these groups and you pay your special fees and it's a Sunday and you slash your thumb and you require sutures, is it likely these doctors are going to see you or are they going to tell you to go to one of the other facilities that you mentioned already? It would depend on the degree of the injury, but certainly they'll be a little bit more responsive, I think. So uh, they'll call the ER so the guy can see you quicker, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that might that might be the case. <laughs> uh, I have seen that, but they, you know, if you get what you pay for in that sense. And so if they're expected to attend to you, I think a lot of the time they will attend to you or make sure that somebody else does. For those of you who are just tuning in, Welcome to Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm speaking with Dr. Jack Frenoshik, and we're discussing ED alternatives from boutique medicine to urgent care centers. You mentioned standalone ERs. What was the financial factors that led to that conception, and are they successful? Well, these so-called freestanding emergency centers have been around for quite some time. They seem to be enjoying a greater popularity. Most of them are open 24-7. They provide a higher level of service than a retail clinic or an urgent care center and encompass x-ray, laboratory services, advanced imaging studies, and, of course, the presence of skilled physicians and nurses. An example of this might be a campus which links the freestanding emergency center with surrounding physicians' offices, an outpatient surgery center, a diagnostic imaging center, and so forth. 
I think from the perspective of the hospital, it's an attractive proposition since they can provide a service oftentimes where no service exists. They can charge ER prices, which I think is of some benefit to hospitals. And what they hope to do is capture a new patient population, which they haven't had before. In some instances, those patients are then fed to the main hospital for surgery and other services. The Freestanding Emergency Center promises to decrease weights, provide additional services where they're needed, and sometimes can be used as a first step en route to building a hospital at that site. So basically you're saying then that we needed them because of the demand on our already overburdened emergency care system. Is that right? I think in part they seek to decompress the local emergency department. Also, they reflect the notion that a lot of services can now be rendered on an outpatient basis that heretofore always needed the inside of the hospital, so to speak, to be delivered. Whenever you have a unit that provides a step down in care, you always incur a risk that the truly ill won't get the care they need if they walk into the wrong facility with the wrong diagnosis, and this brings on MTALA and a need to assess and treat. What would you say about that? I think it's a possible danger. In some states, freestanding emergency centers and urgent care centers are unregulated. In Texas, for example, you can open a place and call it an emergency unit without necessarily having to adhere to any standard. And so somebody... That's scary. scary. Yeah, it is scary. I think somebody getting there at 7 p.m. after the place closed at 6.59 p.m. with an emergency could be in a difficult position. So I think the answer, and certainly it's the answer in the state of Illinois, is to adopt appropriate regulation to prevent that from happening. Most of the freestanding emergency centers that I know, the good ones at least, are regulated, have to adhere to standards, including Joint Commission standards, and for the most part have an ambulance stationed right at the facility so that if somebody shows up there with a really bad emergency, they can be immediately transferred to a hospital setting. I think most professional associations have endorsed the concept of regulation as well. But not in Texas but not in Texas. What about the role of digital medicine? How can computers affect the extension of caregivers at some of these facilities if they're not trained ER physicians? Well, this is a terrific development. Did you know, for example, that you can now purchase a digital stethoscope? I think it costs about $400. Or you can purchase a digital otoscope so that you can either transmit heart sounds or lung sounds to a remote location or even an image of somebody's eardrum. So what that allows is for a provider at any given location, for example, a nurse practitioner, to put a stethoscope on somebody's chest or put an otoscope in a kid's ear and then transmit those images to a physician at a remote location that can supervise the care. So it's kind of interesting. You're trained to look or listen to something, and you're not trained to know what it is you're looking at or listening to. You don't necessarily have to be. Of course, nurse practitioners are very adept at this. Yes, they are. But what it allows for is the physician to supervise people at a remote location. The examples are actually pretty exciting. The so-called concept of the electronic ICU comes to mind here where a critical care physician can supervise a variety of patients from a remote location. And in this area, when a lot of people are talking about stroke emergency centers and the possibility of giving clot-busting therapy to patients with stroke, even a neurologist can have access to that patient to help make the decision as to whether to give that therapy or not via the internet. 
We mentioned retail clinics. They're not new anymore. Have they been financially successful and have they taken some of the burden off the uh, emergency departments? I've had patients come to me who said they tried to get seen in Walgreens and they couldn't, and then they went to an urgent care center because Walgreens couldn't deal with it. Well, 2009 is being billed as the year of reason and logic coming to the retail clinic. Boom. Certainly people got very enthusiastic about these over the last two or three years, and I think there's now something like 1,175 of them in 37 states. Minute Clinic leads the pack with about 550 clinics, and that's sponsored by CVS. Walmart is entering the market, and Walgreens is already in it as well. And, you know, 70% of patients that go to a Minute Clinic walk out with a prescription or have an electronically transmitted prescription, which makes it attractive for pharmacies to station Minute Clinics there. But it's an expensive proposition. You have to see 30 patients a day to make it a go. You have to have a certain amount of square footage. Nurse practitioners are expensive. And so the enthusiasm for the movement has waned a little bit. Nevertheless, there's about 121 of these things now being sponsored by 38 hospital systems, and Walmart is now approaching hospital systems to go in with them in minute clinic operations. The new development is that besides people coming in with a sore throat, there seems to be a market for people's chronic disease management, high blood pressure, diabetes, occupational medicine, and additional services that can be provided at low cost. So employers find this an attractive option to send their patients or their employees to, to receive these kinds of routine healthcare measures. What would the emergency department of the future look like? The challenge for the healthcare system as a whole of which the emergency department is only a part, is to match the patient's need to the level of service. So if the patient has a very simple problem, they should be seeing a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. If they're having a complex problem, then they should be seen by a physician of whatever skill level and ostensibly be seen in the emergency department. From the perspective of the emergency room, we need to leverage science a little bit, define what standards of practice are, and sort of routinize the daily practice of medicine and even in the emergency room. The most important thing for me as an emergency physician is characterized by this story. I get to deal with patients all the time in my capacity as medical director. But the thing I don't hear very often, which I'd like to hear more of, is uh, a patient that says, not that the physician put in the stitches right or gave me antibiotics for my sore throat, but rather that the physician comforted me. And so my view of the emergency department of the future is not only a certain level of technological expertise, but an arena where people are made well and comforted. I'd like to thank Dr. Jack Pranashik for coming into the studio and being our guest today. We have been discussing emergency department alternatives and their financial impact. I am Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. And thank you for listening.